Good morning, church. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice, be glad in it. Isn't it wonderful to know that the Lord sustained you through this past evening, that while you were in deep sleep, that He kept all of your body functions moving the way they should, and uh, your alarm clock went off, or maybe you rose by yourself and and realized that uh, God's given us all another day to worship Him. But I thank you for being here. I want to thank those who worked in this car show yesterday. Uh, you know, it was grueling outside. It was uh, 6,000 degrees and 197% humidity. Uh, I walked out there for three minutes and came back in. And <laughs> But, uh, no, it was wonderful. There was a lot of wonderful things, cars to look at yesterday. But I was, you know what I was most impressed with? The faithfulness of our people to serve and to work. That, uh, that, really, that really meant a lot to me and to see you out there and, and uh, uh, just, willing to, just willing to serve and, and thank you so much for that in whatever capacity that was. Uh, this morning, please take your Bibles. If, if you have them, if not, I'm sure it might be on the screen. But our text can be found in Revelation chapter 2 beginning at verse 8. We'll read on through verse 11. It's about the church of Smyrna. God's Word says, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The first and the last who was dead and has now come to life says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, now, Lord, we pray that you speak to us through your word. Uh, Lord, your word is truth. Uh, give us ears to hear in Christ's name. Amen. Our text begins with these words. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write. As it was in the church at Ephesus, we have a similar heading. That is, rather than saying angel, uh, I believe it should be to the pastor. I think that that's what it's meaning here. To the pastor of the church. To the pastor of the church. Uh, God wants the pastor to deliver the message to the church so that the church can receive this message and, and the anointing of that word be with that church so that they would be, in, in spite of the tribulation that they're going through, in spite of the opposition that they're having to deal with, that the church would be blessed by that, knowing that, the, that God has given them a direct word. And so by giving them a direct word, that church knows that, that God understands what they're having to deal with. Smyrna itself was a, was a city in Asia Minor situated off the Aegean Sea, about 40 miles north of the city of Ephesus. And we talked about Ephesus last week. So about 40 miles north of, of Ephesus. Uh, it is said that the city of Smyrna received its name from a, a small thorny bush that was prevalent in Smyrna. And uh, this, the droplets of the, of the sap of that bush were used to make incense and perfume. 
Uh, as you read through the New Testament, you find that there are three other references citing the name Smyrna. But you won't find the name Smyrna. You will find the name that is commonly used as the sap from that bush, and it's the word myrrh. Uh, the word myrrh is associated with Smyrna, Smyrna with myrrh. And uh, so they made myrrh in Smyrna. There are three references. As I said, the first one, we find its usage at the time of the visitation of the Magi after the birth of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 2 and verse 11, we read, Then opening their treasures, they presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and smyrna or myrrh. Okay, that's the first reference. The second one we find in the crucifixion of Jesus in Mark chapter 15 and verse 23, and it says, they tried to give him wine mixed with Smyrna or myrrh, but he did not take it. And the third one, we see it used at the time of Jesus' burial uh, by Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. Remember, they went to the tomb of Jesus, and, and they brought these, uh, in, the incense and things, and it says, and John 19, 39, and bringing a mixture of myrrh, or smyrna, myrrh, and aloe. Something else that's unusual about the city of Smyrna, it was the center of Caesar worship. The center of Caesar worship. And this is part of the eastern part of the Roman Empire. To Smyrna, to have the people of Smyrna in for them to have worldly things, man, you know, people say, man, this is, this is the top and the bottom. This is the beginning and the end. This is the first and the last. Man, we are, we are, we are, we are up to date in, in, the way we, in the way we look and the way we act and the way we think. And, and so the people of Smyrna felt that, uh, that man, this is, this, is, this is the top and bottom. This is the first and the last. Keep in mind the term first and last. And notice this in verse 8 of our text. Here we have a word from Christ himself who alone has the right to set the priority of importance as it pertains to who or what is to be worshipped. In verse 8, now keep, keep in mind the people felt that man First and last, alpha and omega, beginning and the end, top and bottom. Keeping that in mind, look at the last part of verse 8. It says, the first and the last who was dead has come to life, says this. Jesus is saying, what is important is not what you have in your possessions or what you think about yourself as being first and last, top and bottom, alpha and omega. But what is most important is the fact that I am the first and the last. I am the alpha and the omega. I am the top and the bottom. I am everything. God is saying to them that everything that they have is far less important. Or anything they have is far less important than what Jesus is to them. So when you come to church... It isn't what you see in church. It isn't what we think we are in church. It is not the size of the church that matters. Folks, I have been, listen, I have preached in churches that had a total attendance of three people. 
And I've preached this to as many as 1,500 when I was in, in uh, <laughs> when I, as a chaplain, I got to preach to 1,500 recruits at, at Great Lakes. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Whether you preach to three or 1,500, doesn't matter. God is there. He's the first and the last. He's the beginning and the end. He's the Alpha and the Omega. We come here not because we say this is the place to be. We come here because God is here. And then look at, pay careful attention to what it says in the first couple of verses and uh, words in verse 9. You see, the first first two words in verse 9, the Lord says, I know. I know. God knows all that you and all that we are going through. God is aware of where we are as a church. God is aware of who you are as a person, where you are in your family, where you are in your relationships, where you are at work. God knows. He says, I know. God is aware of all these things. There is nothing that takes God by surprise. The church at Smyrna had three things, three things working against it that would make most anyone think that it was time to shut the doors and, and close shop. If we had these three things opposed to us, we might think differently about worship. We might think differently about coming to church. But listen to what they had to deal with. There was something that kept them going. The fact that nothing done to them was without God's knowledge of it. That's what kept them going. That they, they had the fullest confidence that whatever was going on in the life of that church, whatever was going on in the life of this church, you're without a pastor. You've come across some, some hard times maybe. Aren't you aware, cognizant of the fact that God knows that? God is aware of that? That God has a plan for yuns? And that God's going to fulfill? Folks, let me, just, let me just calm your hearts a little bit here. When God has set a decree upon something, there is nothing, neither in heaven nor hell, that thwarts God's perfect plan. God's perfect will is God's perfect will. God's decreed will is... It's, it's when, a, when a king put his signet on, on something. When he set his seal on something, it, it was going to be done. When God has set his seal on something, it will be accomplished. No matter what Satan might throw at you, no matter what, 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 uh, what society may put upon you, no matter what might happen in this church, that God has an absolute perfect plan for this church and for you as an individual, and nothing thwarts that. It may not be our plan, but I'm going to tell you, our best plan is not anywhere near as good as God's worst plan. But let's look at these three things that were troubling the church at Smyrna. The first thing working against them was their intent was the intense tribulation. And this tribulation led to the sacrifices that the church had to make 
in that they bore the name Christian. Because they had the name Christian, they, there were some sacrifices to be made. Uh, not only were these sacrifices to be uh, made, but due to their, their profession of Jesus Christ, they were in constant peril from those who opposed them. Because they bore the name Christian, there were people who were opposed to them. There was Perhaps government was opposed to them. Perhaps the businesses were opposed to them. Uh, there were things and there were people opposed to them. In Acts chapter 14, verse 22, it says, In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. The Christian is presented in Scripture as being joyful in the face of tribulation. Those in Acts, that's... John 16, 33. I gave you the wrong verse. John 16, 33. But the Christian is presented in Scripture as being joyful in the face of tribulation. For the believer, there is to be the sense of his or her deeper experience of the presence of God. And his kingdom, when difficult times come, his kingdom, when difficult times come, listen, that kingdom never changes. That kingdom that... God has established his kingdom, and that kingdom exists where? Where does the kingdom of God exist? Right now is present within us. If Christ is present within you, the Bible says it is Christ in you, the hope of glory. If Christ is present within you, the kingdom of God is within you. But someday it is going to be realized when Christ comes back and establishes kingdom on earth that we will live with him forever. That what we're going to face in those final days or for eternity is that we are going to have, we are going to have a world that is going to be filled with only God's people. Only those who have put their trust in Jesus Christ. Male, female, white, black, red, yellow, tall, short, Whatever. All of those who have put their trust in Christ will be the visible kingdom of God on this earth. And we will have one, we will have one leader. We will not be a democracy, we will be a theocracy. One king over us all. Forever. Yes, in the world we have tribulation, but Jesus, I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. Not only does the Lord know about tribulation, but he is also well acquainted with poverty, which leads us to our next point, the second point. The church at Smyrna was especially poor. Do you realize that I want you to think about this. If it was absolutely imperative, absolutely imperative that this church come up with a million dollars tomorrow. One million dollars. Imperative. Let me ask you, you don't have to raise your hand or nothing or nod or anything like this. I'm just making a statement. If this church had to come up with one million dollars tomorrow, at all costs, do you think you can do that? I bet you can. 
but you can. At all costs. We are a very affluent people. Very affluent people. Here is a church that had absolutely nothing. This church had nothing. Let me tell you about their poverty. The Greek word used to describe poverty meant complete helplessness. Beggar. Begging became their only means of survival in the church of Smyrna. They had to beg. That's a poor church. Because of their Christian faith, they were ostracized from society. They were persecuted for being Christian. You may be familiar as to what the Bible has to say in regard to those whom God calls and those who are part of his kingdom. If you would, if you want to turn to, to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Let me, let me just read this for you. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning at verse 26. For consider your calling, brethren, that there are not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. God uses ordinary people. God uses ordinary people. I, I looked at the situation yesterday, and I was looking at Yun's working out there, sweating out there, and I, I saw Yun's, you know, and uh, I said, you know what? God is using ordinary people to accomplish extraordinary things. I was so proud of Yun's. You, you, you labored out there. Uh, that's not your calling in life. You have, we have all kinds of varieties of calling in this church. But those who worked did so willingly and sacrificially. And, uh, and you, you had my applause. You may be familiar as to what the Bible has to say in regard to those. Uh, you know, we just mentioned those who God has called. Uh, that's some of you. Not many wise, not many noble. God has chosen the lesser things. The ordinary things. That's Yun's. The third thing they had working against them is that they had to contend with some Jews, of which the Bible says in verse 9 that they are a synagogue of Satan. And these Jewish assemblies were set up in opposition to the gospel of Christ. You know, there's always going to be opposition to the gospel. No matter, no matter where you go, uh, I'm, I'm working on right now, and, and I hope that you'll be involved in this. Uh, we're, we're going to be looking at an opportunity to form outreach teams. And that will be in the future, but uh, it's not on paper yet, but it's up here. Uh, but we're going to form outreach teams. And I, I want to share with you how we can, as a church, uh, work together, uh, not just grabbing people and saying, brother, are you a Christian? We're not going to do that. But uh, we're going to create friendship evangelism teams. We're going to create friendship evangelism teams. 
and we are going to have opportunity to learn how to uh, share the gospel without having to memorize a whole bunch of verses because I know that when the moment you say we're going to memorize that people go <laughs> just, they're not going to do that uh, but we're going to we, there will be a way to do this folks and I'm, I'm trusting that all of you will be involved in this uh, because I think this will make a tremendous difference in our, in our community if you want to defeat the synagogue of Satan. You're not going to do it by changing their minds. You don't do that by changing minds. You do that by changing hearts. And you and I cannot change a heart, but we know somebody that can change the heart. The same heart that you had that was in opposition, that was hostile toward Christ, that same heart can be changed not because of what the church does, but because of what Christ does. When that heart is changed, you take them from, as, first, uh, as Colossians 1.13 says, you take them from the domain of darkness, from the domain of sin and Satan and death, you take them from that, that domain and you transfer that person because of the gospel. That person is then transferred into the kingdom of Jesus Christ, Colossians 1.13. And that's what we need to do. Our church needs to be focused on that. Our church needs to be focused on a sense that, that whatever opposition is out there, the way that opposition is won is, is, not by, is not by embracing their culture, but by engaging their culture with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we need to do that. That needs to be, that needs to be one of our goals at this church, that we need to engage the culture with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But this synagogue of Satan in Smyrna was set up to promote and, and propagate destructive heresies. They were set up to oppose the purity of the Word of God. They were set up to promote and propagate the vain intentions and imaginations of wicked people. They were set up to revile the worship of God and persecute the worshipers of God. That was the synagogue of Satan. In the midst of the city of idolatrous worship, God had placed His people right in the middle of, 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 of idolatry, right in the middle of a place that was known as the, as, as the capital of, of Caesar worship, God had placed his people. It is much like that today. Here we are in a culture that denies those basic moral and foundational beliefs. Today we live in a world that cries out religious oppression if the Ten Commandments happen to be posted on a government building, they see that as oppression. Commandments which give honor to the God of creation and life. Commandments which view others with worth and respect and dignity. I ask all of us, when is it a violation of a person's rights to treat others with such honor? To treat people with dignity and respect and value and worth and honor. That's what God's Word teaches us. Not to be oppressive toward them, but to treat them with dignity. All people, treat them with dignity and respect. Especially when you're driving your cars. I don't know what it is about people. It's like there's a monster loose behind a wheel. 
and uh, sometimes myself included. Treat people with courtesy, decency, respect, dignity. Never before have we seen such verbal abuse and virulent behavior. And all the while telling the people that it is done for their benefit. There are supposed know-it-alls who aspire to nothing more than to stifle the Christian message. There are men and women who hold high position in society who look upon the truth of God's word as nothing more than hate speech. Nothing could be further from the truth. My brothers and sisters, the only one we fight against is Satan himself. And the only thing we hate is that which separates people from God, and that is sin. We find three imperatives given us in verse 10. First, we read, do not fear. Second, we have, you will be tested. And third, we are told to be faithful. First then, the church was told, do not fear. It is an obvious fact that during the first couple of centuries of the church, the pagan influences served as a catalyst in calling for the persecution of the church. In fact, there's a guy by the name of Polycarp, Bishop, Bishop of Smyrna. Bishop of Smyrna, Polycarp. Uh, his reign as bishop was 155 to 160 A.D., uh, there are not many of us who were there at that time, but 155 to 160 A.D. And after refusing to say, after Polycarp, this beloved Christian leader of the church, after refusing to say, Caesar is Lord, and renounced Jesus Christ, he was then burned at the stake for his testimony. Burned at the stake because he refused to say that Caesar is Lord. Well, we know who Lord is, don't we? There's only one Lord, and that's Jesus Christ. So then, what about us? What are we to fear? I'm not attempting to bring unnecessary alarm to you, but may I assure you that just simply due to the fact that we live in a highly secularized and technological age, and that we live in a land that seems to tolerate a diversity of religious ideas that presupposes a safety net for us who call ourselves for we call ourselves Christians. We think that because of our religious diversity we have here, that we're safe. That's our safety net. Folks, that offers no security. No security. Keep in mind these words from, from the Lord. He says, remember the word that I said unto you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Luke fifteen twenty. This is not an assumption on the part of Jesus. This is a guarantee. He says, they will. If they did this to me, they will, they will do this to you. It's not, it's not, it's not I, I think so. It is, it's going to happen. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Don't be led into fear. Fear is the cause to doubt God. And you know what? Right now, people are living in fear all over this world. We live in fear. We live in fear because of, of, uh, of hostilities around the world, wars. We live in hostility because of pestilences and plagues and illnesses. It paralyzes. We become apoplectic because there's this fear that resonates in our minds and our hearts and says, I'm afraid to do anything. 
The scripture says perfect love does what? Casts out fear. Folks, now's the time to be strong, to be brave, to be bold. We stand up for Jesus Christ. Don't be led into fear. It is a tool that Satan uses to bring us to a a, a position, a place of inactivity. We don't need a church that's inactive. We need a church that's active, vibrant, vital to the community and to the kingdom of God. Why do you suppose that there are a number of Christians who are easily persuaded to remain silent concerning their faith in Jesus Christ? Fear has caused us to shrink back from offending someone. If we refuse to do anything for fear of offending someone, then I suppose the church would get little or nothing ever accomplished. Anything that is done in the name of Christ is in some way offensive to somebody. Anything that we do in the name of Jesus, someone is going to be offended by it. The second imperative is, you will be tested. For the church at Smyrna, their test came in the way of persecution and tribulation. For us, our test will come as we stay the course until the time that we may welcome our new pastor. We got to stay the course. In fact, not just stay the course, we need to we need to put more coal in the engine. We need to burn brighter, burn hotter, run faster, move ahead. Paul says, I press forward. I'm not doing slow speed ahead. I'm not doing reverse engines. It's full steam ahead. Will we be a people of prayer and repentance? Will we stay the course in Christian endeavors? Will we, as Paul states, fight the good fight, finish the course, keep the faith? And our third imperative is be faithful. What God commands us is faithfulness. The Bible tells us, just plain and simple, the just, the just, that's yuns, you trusted in Jesus. The just live by what? By fear? By feeling? No, you live by faith. You live by faith. Without faith, we cannot please God. Without faith, we have no ground to stand upon. Without faith, all hope is lost. Faith is our resting upon the trustworthiness of God. If we cannot trust an omnipotent God, then there is no doubt that we cannot trust others or ourselves. I ask you this final question. Has your faith found its resting place? Has your faith, have you, have you found your resting place? One of the great hymns says this. My faith has found a resting place, not in device or creed. I trust the ever-living one, his wounds for me shall plead. I need no other argument, I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died, and that he died for me. Let's pray. Father, teach us to be like the church at Smyrna, Lord, in spite of opposition, in spite of 
tribulation, oppression, persecution, in spite of not knowing what the next step is, Father. May we be steadfast in our hope and trust in you. Father, whatever the world might throw against us, Lord, may we have our resting place in Jesus Christ. May we stand firm. May we be strong and as the world throws its doubts and fears upon us. Thank you, Lord, for this day of worship, this opportunity to come together as brothers and sisters in Christ to give to you worship from our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.